Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and welcome to Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. Today we begin an exciting new series called Remembering the Reformation. The message titled today is The Protestant Reformation, and we'll turn in our Bibles to 2 Timothy chapter 3.16 as we begin. One of the great tragedies of any culture is that great things that are one in one generation through bravery, conviction, sacrifice, and courageous faith are forgotten by another generation who take things for granted and then, because of that, lose what others have gained for them. The statement in Exodus 1 verse 8, now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. Well, that tells us that when the past is forgotten, difficult days lie ahead. You know, the famous dictum that eternal vigilance is the price of freedom gets said so that the principles that brought us freedom need not only to be remembered, but they need also to be pursued. Now, as I record this message, we're closing in on to the year 2017. Now, to many people, there's nothing significant about that year, but for the next week, I want to explain why it is that 2017 is a very significant year for Bible-believing Christians and also for others. You see, 2017 marks the 500th anniversary of the Protestant Reformation. But here I fear that a generation has truly arisen that knew not Joseph, or in this case, a a generation has arisen that knew not Luther and Calvin and Zwingli and others. Let me explain that. Many times, even when I am with Bible-believing Christians and I speak about Martin Luther, I'll hear someone think that I'm speaking about Martin Luther King, not even knowing that Dr. King chose his name in order to identify with Martin Luther. Or I'll encounter some Christians who have heard some of the not-so-nice stories of the Reformation and then will immediately discount what was accomplished then. So let me clear away some of the misconceptions. Yeah, it is true that the Reformers of 500 years ago did not fully grasp the separation of church and state. It is true that on some occasions they participated in the persecution of others. It is true that sometimes they vacillated between a medieval church and a biblical one. But there are some other things that are equally true. I mean, do you think that the Bible is the only source of the authority over the life of the believer and over the church? Uh, Do you think that whatever you do, no matter what your profession is, whether you're a pastor or a plumber, that you have a sacred profession? You think it's important to know how to have your sins forgiven and receive the assurance of eternal life. You think it's important to answer the question, what must I do to be saved? You believe it's important to teach people to read and therefore to study the Bible for themselves. You believe that every Christian should discover their spiritual gifts and understand what their ministry is. Do you love singing together as a congregation? At communion, do you partake in both the bread and the cup? You think that we should always be striving to return the church to the ideal set out in the Bible. Do you think that the preached Word of God is central to the life of the church? Now, if you think yes to all of these things, do you know that all of those things that I've just mentioned were all but forgotten by the church and that they had to be recovered? And that's the story of the Reformation. And my great concern is that today, we're living in a day when much of what was recovered is in danger of being lost again. And if it's lost, the church will re-embark in her second dark ages. I'm going to have more to say about that throughout this week. 
See, our faith, the Christian faith, the faith that was given to us by a revelation from God came to us in history. See, most of us are aware that our faith came to us not just by a God who declared his truth to us, but that he did so in the events of real history. God called Abraham to leave his country and his people and to go to the land that God had promised to him. That event happened about 2089 B.C. God called Moses, and through him, all of Israel left Egypt to go to the promised land about 1446 B.C. God called David to be the king of Israel around 1010 B.C. Jerusalem finally fell to the Babylonians who burned their temple in 586 B.C. And in 538 B.C., King Cyrus of Persia offered up an edict allowing Israel to return to the promised land. And somewhere around A.D. 27 to 30, Jesus of Nazareth began his public ministry only to be crucified three years later and then rise from the dead. And so in not too many years from now, we're going to celebrate 2,000 years since the death and resurrection of Jesus and the proclamation that Jesus Christ is Lord of all. And that's what I mean. God didn't just reveal his truth to us, but he did so in history and in real events in which he caused his truth to enter into the real historical experience of the human race. All of us know that. Christianity is a historical faith, not just a set of ideas or even of revealed truth, but revealed truth in real and verifiable history. This is what makes our faith to be absolutely unique. We're not a faith of myths, not a faith of proclamations that come out of the clear blue, but a faith where one event builds on another event as God reveals his truth to us. See, but many Christians simply don't know what happened after the last book of the Bible was written until the present time. Indeed, how did we go from a church that was overseen by the apostles until today, where there are three branches of the Christian faith, that is, Roman Catholicism, Eastern Orthodoxy, and the Protestant churches? And even saying what I've just said will leave some Christians scratching their heads. I mean, what did he just say? Three branches of the Christian faith. I've just never heard of that thing before. And so today I'm going to make matters fairly simple. I want to talk about one of the great schisms of the Christian faith, what it is and why it is that it happened. Another way of saying that is I want to speak of one of the great aha moments in the history of our faith when people turn back to the gospel. And that takes me back to the year 2017. 2017 will mark 500 years since the Protestant Reformation. So let me take you back to 1517. It was October 31st. Oh, yes. And by the way, if you want an alternative to Halloween, why not make it Reformation Day? But I'm I'm digressing. It was October 31st, 1517, in a small German town of Wittenberg located somewhere in northwestern Germany today. There was a church in that town, part of a castle. On that day, an Augustinian monk named Martin Luther, armed with a piece of paper and a hammer, nails the piece of paper on the door of the church, and with that act, literally changes the world. Now, it needs to be said that nailing something to a church door wasn't a problem. See, in that day, a church door would only function like a a city newspaper in which news and announcements and, and other items were often left there. But this piece of paper was very different. It's been called the 95 Theses. What that paper contained was essentially 95 complaints against the abuses of the church in his day and a demand for change or or for reform. 
See, because the printing press had been invented, copies of the 95 Theses were quickly mailed all over Europe, and this set the world on fire. Now, before we look at what that paper actually said, let's just trace what gave rise to that piece of paper. See, in that time, all of Europe labored under the Roman Catholic Church. Reading a Bible for oneself was forbidden. Indeed, all Bibles that existed were housed in churches and seminaries, and the only copies that existed were in Latin. Common people just didn't speak Latin. Indeed, if you went to church in those days, there really wasn't a sermon or congregational singing or any of the things that millions of Christians just simply take for granted today. If you'd gone to a church in Europe 500 years ago, you'd have gone to celebrate the Mass. You'd have received the bread in which you would have been told that it had been transformed by a miracle into the actual body of Jesus, and you were given the privilege of eating the flesh of Christ. The cup would have been withheld from you. It was too holy for the common person. Only the priest or the servant of the gospel would have the privilege of drinking Christ's blood on your behalf. Indeed, the priest was the intermediary between you and God. You couldn't go to God on your own. Indeed, the way of forgiveness in those days was granted only through the church, that is, the priest and the church hierarchy. The church taught that there were seven sacraments or seven means of grace that imparted God's grace into your life. That would have included baptism and the Eucharist, or what we call communion today, confirmation, the confessional, marriage, extreme unction or last rites, and the ordination of priests. I mean, these seven functions of the church, so people were taught, is what infused God's grace into you. Get the seven sacraments from the church and you receive grace. Don't get them from the church and only hellfire awaits you. Now, technically, this was called the treasury of merits. The church, it was said, had a treasure chest of the merits of Christ, which it could apply to you. And for most people 500 years ago, that was all they ever knew of the Christian faith. But that October 31st, 1517, and that piece of paper nailed to the door of a church in Wittenberg was about to change all of that. What does the Bible say about things like gender identity, homosexuality, and transgenderism? Well, these are questions that live in the minds of many young adults in our culture. Dr. John Neufeld said, I can think of no greater need than the need to give biblical, reasonable, and understandable answers to the questions they're asking about gender identity. Well, we're responding to that need by hosting In Doubt's first In Doubt Live event about sexual identity. In Doubt Live will include speakers Dr. John Newfeld, leader of Ethos Ministry and pastor Dave Johnson, In Doubt's own ministry leader Isaac Dagno, and Steve Kim from Apologetics Canada. And the evening will also include an open forum for questions and worship led by Brittany Dagno. If you're a young adult or part of a young adult Christian group, join us for In Doubt Live Sexual Identity happening Thursday, October 27th at 6.30 p.m. at the Clova Theatre in Surrey, British Columbia. In Doubt Live is free, and you can discover all the details at live.indoubt.ca. Now let's go back to the Bible with Dr. John Newfeld. What sparked the anger of Martin Luther was the appearance in Wittenberg of a man named John Tetzel, what has been called the sale of indulgences. 
Tetzel was a very powerful preacher and he made a bold announcement. Right now, he proclaimed, your dead relatives who have gone before you are languishing in purgatory. They're suffering to pay off their sins, but Jesus and the apostles and the saints were far better than they needed to be to get into heaven. And so, if you will, they had left what I call goodness bucks behind. Think of it this way. Imagine it costs 1,000 goodness bucks to get into heaven. Imagine that Jesus earned billions of these goodness bucks and left them unspent. And the apostles and the saints also left unspent goodness bucks behind. And what's more, the church had them stored up. And now because of an act of grace, the church was ready to sell them off. Tetzel described in great detail the torments of those who are right now languishing in purgatory. If today, he said, your heart moves you, come and buy an indulgence for your dead mother or father and uncle and your aunt. And as soon as the money hits the bottom of the offering box, your dead relative will spring up into heaven. Well, Luther was filled with rage. And a lot of that rage stemmed from his own Bible study. See, when Luther entered a monastery as a young man, his mind and heart was filled with the stories and the terrors of hell. And so he did what the church taught him to do. He fasted and he prayed and he slept without blankets and he afflicted his flesh. And he even wrote, if ever a monk got to heaven by monkery, it was I. Eventually, Luther traveled to Rome and participated in climbing the steps of the Vatican on his knees, leaving them bloody and sore. And when he got to the top, he got a piece of paper expressing his absolution from sins. But his first thought upon receiving that paper was, I wonder if it's so. And eventually, a wonderful opportunity came to his way. In 1511, he was brought to Wittenberg in order to teach. He was given the privilege of studying scripture, and it was there that everything changed. The change happened in 1514, and that experience has often been called the Tower Experience. He was in the tower room of his Augustinian cloister, where he spent long hours sitting before an open Bible, pondering its contents. He'd been given the task of teaching the book of Psalms and the book of Romans. He was driven to the expression, the righteousness of God, found first in Romans 1.16. See, the church taught that this term always referred to God's justice in punishing sinners and commending the just. But as Luther considered this phrase and found it difficult to understand how this quotation taken from Habakkuk 2 verse 4, which included the phrase, the just shall live by faith, could in any way speak of God's judgment of sinners. I mean, something didn't fit and was skewing the way in which Romans was being understood. How could Paul call the righteousness of God the gospel or the good news for sinners? I mean, eventually Luther realized that the righteousness of God was an expression that related to Christ's work on the cross, whereby God would regard the sinner as righteous through the meritorious work of Christ on the cross. This meritorious work of Christ declared how God was righteous and how the sinner could find mercy. You know, for some time, Luther had been so overwhelmed by the enormity of his own sin and the righteous character of God. But now in his study of the text in Romans, he saw that he needed to produce no meritorious works on his own to be accepted by God. Rather, God had already produced that meritorious work in his Son, and so the justice of God was satisfied. So in a flash, Luther saw that he would be exonerated before God by faith in Christ alone. 
See, Romans 3, 23 to 26 now made it plain how Christ could remove his sin and also God's righteous condemnation and anger in such a way that he could remain just while justifying the ungodly. I hope you understood that because Luther did and a tremendous burden was lifted off his heart. He began to experience the joy of fellowship with God without doubting that his sins had been forgiven. See, what Martin Luther learned from this experience can't be understated. The message that sinners are justified by faith recaptured the heart of the message of the ancient church, brought hope and salvation to countless millions of people who might have languished under a religion of works and condemnation. But a second also important lesson flowed from Luther's tower experience. Luther observed that he had made this remarkable discovery of what Paul was saying in the Scripture, see, not by letting some random spiritual thought just well up from within inside of him. Luther never said, I kind of felt like God was saying this to me, but rather, he knew what God was saying as he sought to understand coherently the meaning of the words that he found in the Bible, using the tools of Bible study, paying attention to grammar, context, the history of the text. See, please don't miss this point. The way in which the Protestant evangelical church came into being was as the result of Bible study using historical methods and grammar to understand each text. And that brings me back to John Tetzel and the selling of indulgences. At first, Luther thought if the church only heard what Tetzel was up to, why, Tetzel's going to be in real trouble now. See, only later did he find out that the selling of indulgences and the enormous money that it brought in was paying for the papal palace in Rome. And so we come back to that fateful moment on October 31st, 1517, where one monk, armed with nothing more than his Bible, took on the structure of what had become an unbiblical church. So what were the 95 theses? Well, they were a demand for the church to rest in Scripture. Consider, for instance, the sixth one. He demanded that the church finally admit that the Pope cannot forgive any guilt or sin except by declaring and showing that it was forgiven by God through Christ. Or consider Numbers 50 and 51, in which he demands that if the Pope wants to build the Basilica of St. Peter, he ought to do so with his own money and stop misleading the people of God. Well, the battle was engaged. Eventually, in order to protect his life, Luther was protected by a powerful German prince, a man named Philip the Wise. Philip hid Luther in his castle in a place called Wartburg. There was absolutely nothing to do. By God's sovereign design, Luther was bored, and he took out his Greek Bible and began translating the entire New Testament into the common German language of the day, and he published it. The year was 1522 when a Bible was made available to the common people that all could read on their own. No longer were they left with the church telling them what it said. They could read it for themselves. Now, five principles emerge from the Reformation. They, they have been called the five solas of the Reformation. The word sola is a Latin word. It means only. Now, these five solas are still a part of all churches who have come out of the Reformation. The first is sola fide, or faith alone. 
If you want to know that your sins are forgiven and that you have eternal life, this can only be attained by faith and not the church, not ascetics, not even practicing repentance. Only faith in Christ gains forgiveness. The second sola is solo Christo. Forgiveness does not come from the church. It comes from Christ and what he has accomplished on the cross. The sacraments do not bring the grace of God. Christ alone is able to accomplish this. The third is sola scriptura. The authority over the life of the believer comes from scripture, an inerrant Bible, and not from the priest's. The Pope can make mistakes, but God's word stands fixed forever, and it never changes. The fourth sola is sola gratia, or grace alone. The power to believe comes because of the grace of God. We are not to imagine that faith is something that we produce or another work that we do. Rather, all things come by the grace of God. And finally, the fifth sola, soli deo gloria, or to God alone belongs the glory. No, the only glory is not the glory of the church, but all glory goes to God and to him alone. So during this week, in anticipation of the 500th year of the Reformation, I want to recapture the five solas of the Reformation. Join me in this exciting study and have your faith renewed and be overwhelmed that God has not allowed the gospel to be forgotten. Thank God for what he continues to do even in our day. John, this is the beginning of a great new series. But let me ask you the question, just based upon the title, Remembering the Reformation. Is it important for us to go back and remember these great personalities and Bible teachers of history? Yeah, it's such a good question because some of us might remember that it was Henry Ford who said, history is bunk. <laughs> and we must be very careful not to say that. First of all, our, our faith came to us through historical events, but also for the last 2,000 years after the, the scriptures have been completed, there are individuals who have worked and who have sacrificed and who have built a faith, and we should learn from them so that we wouldn't say to ourselves, you know, I'm the first generation that came to believe. It's not true. Uh, in fact, I think we should celebrate faithfulness because it will, you know, first of all, allow us to learn from them, but it will also give us great and godly heroes. And uh, I, I think we all need to have those kind of people in our lives. The Reformation is one place where we can find them. Well, we have much to look forward to in the next few days. Back to the Bible Canada, leading you forward in your walk with Jesus every day. There's never been a more popular ministry resource over the years than our annual Bible reading calendar, and this year will be no exception. So our 2017 Bible scripture reading calendar entitled Defining Moments of Faith is now available. With a theme based on the 500th anniversary of the Reformation, the calendar depicts and describes many of the most picturesque and relevant locations and introduces some of the most influential people of the period. 
but the calendar's primary goal remains the same, to guide you through reading the Bible in a year using Dr. Neufeld's unique reading plan. So ask for your free copy today, one free per household, by calling 1-800-663-2425. That's 1-800-663-2425. Quantities are limited, so don't delay.